Good morning, church. My name is Lachlan, one of the pastors here. Uh, my great privilege to open up God's Word for us this morning and help us feel the weight of what God has just said to us there in John 14. Uh, it saddens me that we're coming to the last week of summer. I don't know if you've realized that. February's almost at a close. It's been a great summer. Lots of sunshine, lots of warmth. It's nice to see the rain again. Feels like we live in Auckland again, you know, it's all this sunshine. What is that? It's not us. Uh, but no, it has been a great summer. One of the features of my summer has been a few weddings. I think within church, as a church family, we've had, I don't know, six weddings, maybe even more, just amongst members of church. It's been a great summer. And as I've gone along to these weddings and had the opportunity to speak at a few of them, it's given me a chance to think about love. What is love? What, what is it to be in a loving relationship with another person? Uh, last week, I was a, a wedding. It was brilliant. The uh, beautiful wedding, exceptional speeches, uh, the, the groom got absolutely roasted by his parents and by his sister, uh, the bride copped a bit as well. But as we're there celebrating this beautiful wedding, it, it just gets you thinking, well, what is, what is love? And we have all sorts of different ideas about love and loving relationships. Uh, some of them are true, others of them not so true, not so helpful. They come from TV and movies, uh, all sorts of different ideas about love. And this morning, John's Gospel poses the question for us, what does it look like to be in a loving relationship with Jesus? I think that's one of the key questions of this part of God's Word this morning. What does it look like to be in a loving relationship with Jesus? Perhaps you heard all of the uses of the word love as Austin read for us. Just keep your Bible open there and scan your eyes down. Verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me. Verse 21, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me. Verse 24, verse 28, verse 31. At ten times in these 17 verses, we hear this word, love. So whatever else it is, this is a passage that's talking about what it looks like to be in a loving relationship with Jesus. As we come in this morning, we're a mixed crowd as a church. Some of you here today know what this is like. You know this relationship. You are in this relationship with Jesus. You love Jesus. You know His love for you. Everything we're going to see today will be a refreshing reminder for you of what is your daily experience with Jesus. Others of you, as you come in this morning, you know that you have no relationship with Jesus. Uh, to you, Jesus is just someone on the side. You might have thought a little bit about Him, maybe not at all. That's great. Today, I hope that you'll get a sense of what it is that Jesus offers you. I hope you get a taste of how good life is in this loving relationship with Jesus. And you may even decide to enter into that relationship today. And then there are others amongst us who come in today thinking that your relationship with Jesus is all good. And today's passage is going to challenge that self-assessment. And maybe you don't love Jesus as much as you think you do. Now that's going to be helpful to find out. It might hurt to recognize that what you thought about yourself isn't true, but it'll be helpful because you can then decide what you're going to do about that. So that's what we're looking at today. What does it look like to be in a loving relationship with Jesus? If you're coming in fresh, we're at this point in John's Gospel where Jesus is sharing a final meal with His disciples, those first followers. He knows that in about nine, maybe ten hours, He's going to be killed. The guy that's betraying Him, He's already left the room, He's gone out and He's going to come back with some soldiers to arrest Jesus. 
take him off for a false trial, then he'll be killed. And so in that context, Jesus is loving his disciples, helping them to understand his departure, telling them that he's going away, helping them to grapple with that new reality, comforting them. They're freaking out and Jesus has said to them in verse 1 of chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. That's the context that we're coming into. Jesus loving and comforting his disciples as he's about to leave them. And this week, to ease their troubled hearts, Jesus tells them what they can expect as they go on loving Jesus. So here's the big idea for this morning. You might like to write this down in your outline at the top. One simple sentence to help you get your head around this tricky passage. If anyone loves Jesus, they obey Jesus and receive God's Spirit and Jesus' peace. That's where we're headed. That's kind of the roadmap of this morning. If anyone loves Jesus, they obey Jesus and receive God's Spirit and Jesus' peace. How about I pray that God would help us to understand His Word together this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You that You are considerate of our frailty. You know our fears. You know the things that make our heart tremble. And you speak kindly and carefully into our fears. You you comfort us in our frailty. Thank you for your word. And please, this morning, help us to understand it. Help us to see insight into the trickiness and intricacy of this passage, that we might understand what it looks like to be in this loving relationship with Jesus. And so grow our love for Jesus this morning. Help us to love him more as we see his love for us. Amen. Keep your Bible open there in John 14. We're going to be looking in some detail there and you've got space in your outlines to take some notes, a few headings to keep up with along the way. There is lots of detail and intricacy in today's passage. Uh, There's no way we can possibly cover it all. I'd, I'd love to. There's still bits of it that I'm puzzling over, particular verses in here that are quite tricky. The goal today, rather than dealing with all the intricacy, is to try to get the big picture to see the forest and then within that you'll be able to place some of the trees and you can go home this afternoon and read it again and try to zone in on some of that intricacy. But my goal is to show us that overarching forest and three key themes that come up throughout this passage. And so the first heading there in your outlines, we love because He first loved us. What we're looking at under this heading is this relationship between love and obedience, one of the key themes within this passage. You might like to write next to that heading, if anyone loves Jesus, they obey Jesus. That's our first observation about a loving relationship with Jesus. If anyone loves Jesus, they obey Jesus. So have a look at verse 15, see the way Jesus phrases it there. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Again, down in verse 23, he says pretty much the same thing. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And in case we've missed the point in that repetition, verse 24, he puts it in the reverse. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. I think it's pretty clear, isn't it? Love for Jesus goes along with obedience to Jesus. Love for Jesus goes along with obedience to Jesus. That's not to say that they're exactly the same thing. Love does not equal obedience. Love for Jesus proceeds, it gives rise to keeping His commandments. Keeping Jesus' word is the result of loving Him. It's not the same as loving Him, but obedience flows out of love. The reason I'm stressing that they're not 
equal, it's because I don't want you walking out of here thinking, well, okay, I better try harder to obey Jesus. Duty and a sense of duty leading to obedience, that's not love. To think of the Christian life just as duty, that'll lead you in one of a few directions. It might lead to despair, because you just can't do it. It might lead you to pride, because you're thinking, great, I'm, I'm doing this so well, I'm obeying Jesus, wonderful. It might lead you to burnout and stress. That love for Jesus is not the same as obeying Jesus, but they are intrinsically related. So, love naturally and necessarily produces obedience. Not the same thing, but one naturally flows on to the other. So, if you're here this morning and you find yourself wanting to obey Jesus, what you need to do is not try harder to obey Jesus, but grow in your love for Jesus. Do you get that? Love for Jesus will flow forward in obedience to Jesus. So, what does love for Jesus mean then? Like I said at the start, weddings have given me the opportunity to reflect a bit on love this summer. Uh, In a human marriage, the love that we're called to is the same love that God has had for us. It's a committed love and it needs to be committed because the object of our love, the husband or the wife, is not always lovely. The things that you admire and adore about them on that wedding day, they're not always going to be there every day. They won't last forever. And so you make a promise to love, to care for and provide for this other, even when they are unlovely, even when they sin against you, even when they hurt you, even when they lose some of those traits that you have loved about them. Love in a marriage, love in a human relationship is a commitment to love, even when someone is unlovely. When it comes to loving Jesus, that can't be the kind of love that we have for Him, because Jesus has no defects. We don't love Jesus graciously the way that God has loved us. There's no fault or ugliness or sin in Jesus that we need to overlook to then treat Him well. Now, the love that we have for Jesus, it's, it's the proper admiration and adoration of one who is perfectly lovely. Love for Jesus is a response to His beauty, His greatness, His glory. It's desiring Him because He is infinitely desirable. It's admiring Him because He is infinitely admirable. It's enjoying Jesus because He is infinitely enjoyable. It's being satisfied with all that He is because He is infinitely satisfying. Love for Jesus is delighting in His loveliness, like the delight that a groom takes in the beauty of his bride. We're not talking about the ongoing love of that groom when he has to deal with his bride's sin along the way. We're talking in that moment as the the bride walks down the aisle and the groom looks and sees her in all her beauty and wonder. And he tears up. It's that admiration and recognition of beauty, a delight in the loveliness of Jesus. Love for Jesus is the stirring of the heart in desire and appreciation, like the desire of the child when she rushes into the warm, protective embrace of her mum. That's love for Jesus. And when you love Jesus like that, well, obedience just flows naturally, doesn't it? When you recognise how good He is, how wonderful He is, obedience just flows. I wonder if that's what you've thought about Christian obedience before. If you're here this morning as someone on the outside of Christianity looking in, perhaps you've looked on at Christians and thought, They must be really scared of this God. That's why they obey Him. 
They're just scared of hell, so they do these things that God tells them to do, even though they'd probably rather do something different. Well, that's actually not the dynamic of Christian obedience. Christian obedience flows from a, a recognition of God's goodness, His wisdom, His truthfulness, His love. We, we look at our God, who we meet in Jesus, and we say, wow, you are wonderful. If you tell me to do something, I trust that you know better than I do, because you're God, you created it all, I'm just one human being. I trust you know better than I do that you've got a good reason for telling me to do this, that this command is actually for my good. That's the connection of love with obedience. If you're here this morning and you don't have this love for Jesus, and trying to obey Jesus out of a sense of duty, that won't produce this love in you. What are you going to do to grow in this love for Jesus? Well, one of two things needs to happen. Firstly, it might be the case that you need to be born again. You might still be on the outside looking in, have no appreciation whatsoever for Jesus. He, he just looks bland and boring to you. But in that case, you need God to do a work in your heart so that you might see Jesus for who He is. You might see and appreciate the, the truth and beauty and goodness embodied in Jesus. Ask God this morning to do that work in you. Ask God this morning to open your eyes that you might appreciate Jesus for who He is. That might be the first thing that needs to happen. You might need to be born again. Alternatively, secondly, it, perhaps you once had that kind of love for Jesus, but over time it's, it's just dissipated. It's dribbled away like water leaking from a hole in the sink. You once had that love for Jesus, but you've now lost your first love. You no longer love Him as you once did. I think that's probably where I'm at this morning. Worldly things have crept in and stolen my heart and my love for Christ is diminished from what it once was. I've been giving too much time to mindless pursuits of TV and movies and fictional books and food. If that's you as well, if your heart was once captured by Christ but at the moment you, you know that you don't love Him as He deserves and you need to rekindle, we need to rekindle our first love. We need to actually take time to reflect upon Jesus, to spend time with Jesus in His Word and in prayer. Turn off the TV, switch off from the social media profiles that you're scrolling through mindlessly. Spend time with Jesus. You could read others or listen to others as they express their appreciation for Jesus. That will help rekindle that first love. Singing songs that speak of the excellencies of Christ, with music that stirs your heart as you call those excellencies or perfections to mind, that's a great way to rekindle your first love. You need to spend time with Jesus, admiring Him, thinking on Him, meditating upon His glory and beauty. Perhaps you might take the next 40 days in the lead up to Easter in prayer and meditation on Christ. Asking God that your heart might be awakened afresh with love for Jesus who died for you. I was thinking this morning, it's been 10 years now since I spent a lead up to Easter. It was a wonderful time. Uh, picked up John Piper's little book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And just took time each day in 50 days before Easter to reflect on one of those reasons. Gosh, that kindled love for Jesus in me. To just have that time looking at all the different aspects and facets of his death. I got to Easter that year and had such wonder at our Lord and Saviour. Perhaps that's something that might be helpful for you this year, to take that time, rekindle your first love. 
You can do that alone or you might do that together with your family, taking that time in family devotions to think on Christ or you might do that together with a group of friends. But If that's you this morning and you once had that love for Jesus that's just drifted away, rekindle it. Come back to see Jesus for who he is. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It makes you ask the question, how's your obedience to Jesus been this past week, this past month? Uh, There's only one ethical command that you really find within the book of John that comes from Jesus' lips. He says back in chapter 13, love one another as Jesus has loved you. What does your obedience to that command tell you about your love for Jesus? Later on, John, as he reflects on all that Jesus has said in his first letter, 1 John 4, verse 20, quite startling words up on screen there. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, it's easy to say that you love God, to say that you love Jesus, But what does your obedience tell you about your love for Jesus? The two go hand in hand. Love naturally flows forth in obedience. If the obedience isn't there, then maybe the love isn't there like you thought it was. Maybe it's time to rekindle that first love. For some of you, you do love Jesus and you are loving others and you know God's love for you. You're really enjoying this love relationship with God. That's so good. Uh, But for others, perhaps this morning, this is a wake-up call. It's time to come back and love Jesus like we once did. That's the first theme of our passage this morning. If anyone loves Jesus, they obey Him. Secondly then, just as love and obedience go together, so love for Jesus goes together with the presence of Jesus. That's the second heading in your outline there. Jesus is present with those who love Him. Now, we're going to tackle this in a slightly different order, those subheadings in the outline. We're jumping in at the second subheading. So, come with me first to verse 18, John 14, verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. Jesus here speaks to those first disciples, he's comforting them, saying, look, I know I'm leaving you now, I know that's hard, but I'm not leaving you alone, I'm coming back. In these verses, I take it that the coming here refers to the resurrection appearances of Jesus. That's when these disciples first saw Jesus again, that Jesus rose from the dead and he, he didn't show himself around widely to the whole world, but he just appeared to the disciples. He was alive again, and that was the testimony, the assurance that they too would live in resurrection life. I think that's what that last little bit means in verse 19. Because I live, you will live too. I think here Jesus is talking about appearing in the resurrection to his first disciples. Jesus is saying to them, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm coming back from the dead. I'll see you soon. Then in verse 21, though, he starts talking about more than just those first disciples. Do you see it there in verse 21? He broadens it out. The one who has my commands and keeps them, this is for anyone who does that, he says, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. 
So the presence of Jesus that he promises here, it's not just the promise of resurrection appearances. It's a promise for all disciples down through the ages. What's Jesus talking about then? How, in what way will he reveal himself or manifest himself to us? I think it's a bit confusing. It's a bit tricky. I'm really thankful that Judas pipes up at this point with a question. Judas is confused. He doesn't quite get it. He asks Jesus, how, how are you going to reveal yourself to us but not to the world? What's going on here, Jesus? And Jesus then repeats himself in verse 23 with slightly different words that I think are more easy for us to grasp. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And notice this is still open to anyone. If you love Jesus with that love that flows into obedience, you're there in verse 23, aren't you? Anyone who loves me. And Jesus says that He and the Father will come and make a home with you. Gosh, that's a beautiful image, isn't it? Last week we heard in verse 2 that Jesus is going to prepare a home for us in God's house. Now Jesus is saying alongside that, He will come and make His home in our house, along with the Father. The Father and the Son are going to come and make a home in us. How? By His Spirit. There's one Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. They're not two separate spirits, but the one Spirit that unites the Father and the Son. And when God gives us that Spirit, He draws us into that unity and that life of God. God the Father, God the Son make their home in us by the Spirit. Now, on one level, that sounds very esoteric and abstract and distant and removed from everyday life, but think about what that implies. It means that for the Christian, God is never distant from you, ever. God is not off in some faraway galaxy and you need to work hard to get His attention because you might be distracted with something else. No, no, God hasn't abandoned you. He never will. He lives in you by His Spirit. He is always with you by His Spirit. Jesus has not left us as orphans. He has come to us. He lives in us. That gives so much ground to Jesus' words, don't be troubled. God is with you. In your moments of joy, God is with you. In the darkest of pits, God is with you. You are not alone. You are never alone. That's a good truth. God the Father, God the Son have come and made their home in us by the Spirit. We're going to think a bit more about God's Spirit. The passage has lots to teach us on that. But before we get to some of that detail, I want to deal with a concern that was raised for me and perhaps was raised for you as you read verse 21. It sounds like in verse 21 that perhaps Jesus is saying His presence with us is conditional upon our love for Him. Did did you pick that up as you went through? Something I had to wrestle with as I read it. It sounds like in verse 21, God's love for us is conditional upon our love for Him. Now, the Bible is clear that that's not the case. Jesus has already said, if we just stick within John's Gospel, John 6, verse 44, it's up on screen so you don't have to flick back there. Jesus has made clear that our relationship with God starts with His initiative, not ours. John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We don't start our relationship with Jesus, the Father draws us into that relationship, it's not our initiative. Later on, again in John's first letter, he writes, love consists in this, not that we loved God, 
but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We love because He first loved us. Love is not our initiative in starting a relationship with God. It's a response to the initiative God has taken towards us. What's the language in John 14 doing then? It sounds like conditions, but Jesus isn't describing a set of conditions and results. He's describing a set of necessary relationships, things where you can't have one without the other. It will never be the case that you love Jesus, but the Father doesn't love you. It will never be the case that you love Jesus and fail to obey Jesus. It's not condition and result, but just things that fit together, that naturally and necessarily belong together. Love for Jesus goes together with obedience to Jesus and the presence of Jesus with you by His Spirit. Does that make sense? I just want to alleviate that concern because we're going to be in all sorts of trouble if we think that our relationship with God is conditional upon us. God has taken the initiative. He's come to us. He has loved us first. Our love is a response to that, awakened in us by His work in our hearts. We need to rest on that, that unconditionality, that it's all God's gift to us, all of His grace. And yet once we love Jesus, we will obey Him and we'll have God's presence with us. Necessary relationship, not condition and result. So having cleared that ground, let's have a look. What do we learn about God's Spirit in these verses? Come back to verse 16 and we'll pick it up there. Jesus says, I'll ask the Father and He will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. The Spirit is another counsellor who is with us forever. Now the word counsellor, that's a tricky word to translate from the Greek. This is written in Greek originally. We've got great blessing of having English translations to access this, good and faithful and true translations. If you've got a different Bible translation than the CSB, you might have the word helper or advocate or comforter, all different options that people have gone with for this word. Uh, when they translated this into Hebrew and Aramaic in the first century, they, they didn't actually translate that word. They just took the Greek word into the Hebrew, called it the paraclete. And sometimes around Christian circles, you might hear that word, paraclete. That's just the Greek word without being translated. Uh, so there's a bit of a struggle here. The struggle is that this word is not used outside of John's writings in the Bible. John uses it four times in his gospel, one time in his letter. Uh, outside of that, we don't find the word anywhere else. Uh, even outside of the Bible, before the time of John, it's not really used very much at all. So that makes it a tricky word to understand and translate. What we need to do is have a look at it in its context in John's writings to see how he is using this word and what he's saying about the Spirit here. As you look at it in context, we find that counsellor is a pretty good effort at translating it. So long as you have in mind a legal counsellor rather than kind of the social work counsellor that you go to to listen to you. We're talking legal counsel. The Spirit is our legal help. That's why others go for advocate to bring in that legal setting. In chapter 16, we'll read that the Spirit convicts the world like a prosecutor. He acts in that prosecuting sense and shows the world their guilt. And here in chapter 14, it's more that He's acting as our defence attorney, defending us against our guilt before God. When our sin comes to the fore, when we feel the guilt of it, the Spirit is there to point us to Jesus, to remind us that our sin has been dealt with. He defends us, not because we're innocent in ourselves, we're guilty, but Jesus has dealt with our guilt. And the Spirit reminds us of that. 
to ease our conscience and to allow us to live in that truth. So that's what it means for the Spirit to be our counsellor, our legal help who comes and defends us against the accusations of the world or the evil one or our own minds. The only thing that we might miss in that term counsellor is the warmth of the way that the Spirit does that for us. I don't know the perception you have of lawyers, but you know, I tend to think of them as a bit more cold and distant. I'm sorry for the lawyers amongst us, I don't say that for you. I just, just the mental association that we have with lawyers. They're there to do a job, I don't necessarily get personally involved with you. Now, we'd be wrong if we think that that's what's going on for the Spirit here. That's why other translations bring in helper or comforter, because uh, that is involved in this word. The Spirit is not cold and distant, but close and personal. The Spirit defends us, yes, as our legal counsel, but He does that with His arm around us, speaking kind encouragement into our ear. Those are the connotations we're meant to get as we hear of the Spirit as our counsellor. Now, notice for the first disciples, He's described as another counsellor. Who was the first one? Well, Jesus. The Spirit comes as another counsellor, as a replacement for the physical presence of Jesus. They've had Jesus with them, He's been acting as that counsellor, helping them along the way, but now as Jesus leaves, He sends another to come in His place to do the same task that He's been doing. He's another counsellor and in doing that, He's acting as the Spirit of truth, verse 17. He is the Spirit of truth because He is the Spirit of Jesus and Jesus is the truth. And so as the Spirit of truth, His job is to speak truth to the disciples. He comes alongside them, spurring them on in Jesus' absence. One particularly important role of the Spirit, as this Spirit of truth, is taught there by Jesus in verse 26. So, cast your eyes down, I'm going to pick it up at verse 25, John 14, verse 25. I've spoken these things to you while I remain with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've told you. Jesus says that the Spirit will teach the disciples all things. We need to notice in this setting, Jesus is talking specifically to those first disciples. Uh, Jesus is not talking to them about learning new things. He's saying the Spirit will remind them of the things that Jesus has said to them. That's how we know that this is specific to those disciples. Jesus is saying, I've been with you, I've been talking to you, I've been teaching you all these things. Now, you're going to forget them, you're going to lose them, but the Spirit will come, He'll remind you of those things. The Spirit's not coming to teach new things, but to remind them of what Jesus has said. That's how we can sit here today, 2,000 years on, and know Jesus. You know, some people, some who would even call themselves Christians, would say that we can't know Jesus that the Bible is just the human fallible words of men. They're giving their perspective on events that they experienced. They've got dodgy memories. They can't really remember it well. We can't really trust the Bible. We can't really get to Jesus. We can't know Jesus well. But this verse, this ministry of the Spirit, means that we have a knowable Christ. We can know Jesus because the Spirit has empowered the apostles to remember everything that Jesus has said. They're not just relying on their memories, they're not just relying on their fallible selves. Jesus has empowered them, equipped them with His Spirit to guide them into truth and remind them of Jesus' words. 
You see this in action earlier in John 12. Have a look on screen, John 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they'd done these things to him. It's just one example of where the disciples, before Jesus' glorification, they were just fumbling along. They didn't really get it. They were missing things left, right and centre. But then when Jesus was glorified in death, when he rose to new life, when he gave them his spirit, then they could remember. Then they could understand. And so now we can sit here and we can read. And by reading the apostolic word preserved in the Bible, that's when we receive the ministry of the teaching of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit to us is not about Him speaking new things to us. He reminded the apostles of what they had heard Jesus speak. And now we can open up our Bibles and hear afresh the truth of Jesus. We can know Jesus and in that we're receiving the ministry of the Spirit. And as we do that with the Spirit in us, the Spirit teaches us truth. He points us to the Scriptures and goes, there's the truth, there's Jesus. And He uses those Scriptures to comfort our hearts when we go through those times of trouble. He uses the Scriptures to defend us when we feel the pangs of guilt and sin. The Spirit's not interested in teaching us any new things that Jesus didn't teach. There's nothing new to learn. But He takes what Jesus taught. He brings that into the present for us as we read the Bible. I hope you're reading your Bible. This is amazing. We who love Jesus have His Spirit, His own breath, His own inner life. We have the Holy Spirit who makes us holy like Jesus. The Spirit of truth who guides us into truth, helping us to see the world as it really is. The Counselor, our Helper, who defends us against the accusations of the devil and comforts us when we're in turmoil. Jesus is present with those who love Him, by His Spirit, risen from the dead, at home with the Father in us. And finally then, and briefly on this third point, Jesus gives peace to those who love Him. Have a look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled or fearful. And with this, we've come full circle to where we started last week. Don't let your heart be troubled. Jesus gives peace to those who love him. Throughout this section, Jesus has started to talk about the separation, the distinction between his disciples and the world. Verse 17, he said that the world will not, cannot receive the Spirit. Verse 19, the world will not see Jesus. In verse 30, the, world, the ruler of the world is coming. The, the devil is coming to see Jesus killed thinking that if that lies his victory. But Jesus says the devil has no power over him. The world has no power over us. As disciples of Jesus, we live in a world that we don't belong to. We live in a world whose ruler is out to get us. We live in a world that promises peace, that strives for peace, but will never be able to achieve it. As we live in that world, it's natural that we'll feel troubled, that we'll go through times of stress and anxiety. We're not at home here. We're living in a world that is opposed to us, from which we are distinct. And so as we navigate this conflict with the world, Jesus leaves us with the peace that he had as he navigated his conflict with the world. See that in verse 27? It's not an abstract peace that Jesus gives, it's his peace. 
the peace that he had as he lived out life in this world. Foundationally, that's a peace with God. It's a right, reconciled relationship with God that means we're not living this life on our own. But then that peace with God, it dissolves our fears. It gives us composure in the midst of trouble. It allows us as Christians to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of our frantic, frenetic, anxiety-filled world. As we cast our anxieties on the God who cares for us, as we pray to Him about everything that we're concerned about, then the peace of God that transcends all understanding guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That's the peace that God has for us. Do you know that peace? What is it to be in a loving relationship with Jesus? That's a wonderful relationship, isn't it? If you love Jesus, you'll obey Him. If you love Jesus, you'll have God living in you by His Spirit, never alone. Not God distant out there somewhere, but God in you and with you through it all. If you love Jesus, you'll enjoy Jesus' peace. You'll be able to feel restful and calm in the midst of life's troubles and turmoils. That's a good place to be. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you've loved us with an everlasting love. And we love you. Not as much as we ought to. We're aware of that. We, we don't see you in all of your glory and perfection and beauty. You're, you're more excellent than our soul can grasp. You're infinitely good. You're eternally wise. You are incomparably delightful. You're always true. You're full of compassion, matched with perfect justice. That There is no one like you. So stir our heart this morning with love for you. We want to see you as you are. We want to love you as you deserve. Forgive us for the ways that we've distracted ourselves from you. The ways that we've been caught up in the pleasures of this world, which are so much lesser than you. They don't deserve our attention. They don't deserve our time. And yet we get caught up, pulled away by a world that wants us to get pulled away, that's spending billions of dollars on advertising to distract us, even to distract us from sleep. Lord, the world is against us. We're different from the world. It, it wants to pull us away from you. But Lord, stir in our hearts that right and proper love and admiration for you. This week, help us to enjoy your presence, to live in your peace. Show us more of yourself that we might grow in our love for you. Amen.